You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have an absolutely awesome guest on the show. We have Dr. Julie Versaloni, who is a coral reef scientist. We all love a coral reef. Welcome to the show, Dr. Julie. Hi, Amelia. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm really looking forward to digging into this one. We'll start with, who knows, it could be an easy question, might not be. What is your job? Yeah, it's actually not a really, really easy question, but I will try to do my best to explain my job. I say I'm a coral reef scientist, and what I'm doing is I'm doing research to try to quantify the impact of climate change on the Great Barrier Reef. And what I really try to do is I try to provide solutions to estimate and understand what is killing the corals on the reef and where the coral die or where it bounces back. It's pretty complex because the Great Barrier Reef is it's huge in size. We used to compare it to Italy. It's the size of Italy, actually. And so we need a lot of information everywhere to monitor and to monitor the coral population and to better understand what's going on. And so to do that, we use new technology which is actually based on like the same technology, which is based on face recognition, you know, like to automatically recognize faces from camera, where we do the same, but for the corals. And this is based on images. And so because of the access of this technology, we can analyze really, really quickly millions of images from the seafloor. And then we plug these images to some statistical modeling, which is a really useful tool because it allows to detangle all the different impacts of climate change and the impact of something else from the data. And so my job is really to do the last bit. So I am trying to develop new statistical methods based on this new type of data to understand the influence of disturbances such as the impact of cyclone or the impact of one, two, three coral bleaching one after each other. And then once we understood this, what we can do is we can predict how the reef will look like in the future, if we keep going to have these disturbances after disturbances. But what is really interesting also is to predict on the area of the reef where we don't have data, because it's just impossible to monitor the reef everywhere. So what we do is we use statistics to gain knowledge about the data and to predict on places where probably people have never been and we will never go there. And then what is really useful, what we do is we produce map and this map are then shared to the manager of the reef and that's provide information on where they can make decisions about where to go to do some restoration or where to go to have a better look of what's going on. There was a lot in that, like a lot. And I'm really glad I was taking notes because you said some very cool things that I think we need to go back and dig a, a bit deeper into some of those things. But just starting with 
I've never actually heard the comparison between the Great Barrier Reef and Italy. But if you think about Italy, like it's got coastline areas, it's got Alps and like it's a very diverse place and the, the ecology and the environment is very different in different areas. And I wouldn't be surprised if people sort of thought of the Great Barrier Reef as being kind of homogenous, like it's all the same everywhere along the reef. Like also fair to think that because it's so big, there's also a lot of like ecological differences throughout the reef. There is some common places where the the species will grow on the same way, the same species will grow. But for example, there is a big differences of diversity diversity between the north and the south. The north of the GBR is much more diverse than the south. And also there is a differences between north and south, but there is also a big differences between the reef that they're really close to the coast and the reef because they're facing a lot of runoff from the coast, more pollution. So the populations of the type of corals and algae that you will find on the reef are really different from the reef that they are more in the what we call the outer reef, so they are more exposed to more marine waves and less runoff from the coast. So there is a big, big differences between north and south and inside the reef or outside the reef. And even within the reef, it's also different because the reef, it's, you will have the center of the reef, which is mostly sand and few corals can grow there because of the tides. And when it's low tide, most of the coral are exposed to the air. And then you have the slopes when it's different, like you have a different type of lights, you have a different types of how the coral can grow depending on the slope of the reef. So it's really complex. And on the top of that, this is the most marine biodiverse system in the world. So no pressure, but we want to look after it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we do. <laughs> Which is obviously why people like you are doing the work that you're doing. So are you involved much with the image recognition side of the work? Or do you take, like once things of the corals have been recognized, you then do the analysis? Yeah, yeah. So I'm working with the teams that they are developing more of this aspect. I used to work also where we were collecting images on the reef. So we were driving um, underwater scooter. And we were going like really, really, really far, really remote on the far north Queensland on the reef to take images. So we were driving a scooter for an hour in the water and taking images of the reef every three seconds. But this is another team that I'm working with who developed all this artificial intelligence algorithm automatically recognize different types of corals, different types of algae, different types of sponges. And then we have the data. And then my job is really to analyze this data. So I feel like there would be a lot of data. Yeah, it is because it's million of images. We have uh, 50 points for each of these images. And on each of the points, he's telling us if it's uh, different types of coral, sponges, or algae. So yeah, you need to be pretty good of handling a big data set. And like images are big in general as well. Something else you said, there's places that we've probably never been, like on the Great Barrier Reef. Like I would have just, obviously not that it had all been mapped and imaged or anything, but I just sort of 
I guess I thought someone would have been everywhere on it. No, there are some places. It's so huge. It's so massive. I think we don't necessarily realize how big it is. When we did the trip, we start from Cairns and we went up north until Tiju Island at the end. On the day two, probably, we didn't cross a single boat for more than three weeks. The only people that we met was actually the controller of the Australian border by plan who came and controlled us. <laughs> That's the only people we met in more than three weeks. So they will right. on the reef, they will have some, I guess, some famous reef where the tourism company are going to. But we talk about thousands of individual reef. And for sure, there are some places that they, people have never been. And so obviously we're not going to have like any baseline data for those places. So it's not like you can, like even if we took images of it now, we're not going to know what it did look like because we haven't seen it. So Yeah, and we cannot. It's too expensive. It would be too expensive to do this or so because the cost of bringing a team of scientists, uh, bringing the equipment, even if we just take any images, it's pretty high. We work also on the project that instead of having images from scientists and from research team, we use citizen science. So we ask people who go and visit the reef to take an image for us and to send it to us. Always do love some citizen science. Yeah, this is... It's nice when people get involved. And I mean, people like taking photos of coral reefs. Yeah, there is a big potential because the Red Barrier Reef is one of the first natural places visited in the world. There is 100,000 of tourists over there every day. And now with the access of these new technologies, the only thing that we ask is to take an underwater camera, even a GoPro, and pointing down toward the seafloor and just take the picture and just send it to us after. It's something that is really valuable. And what we do is we do exactly the same process. So instead of using artificial intelligence also to classify the images, we can use also the citizen science of the online community who come in, who jump in and classify corals on an image. And we are currently doing a lot of research to find the best way to use this data because people are not experts. We know that, but... They can be pretty good and really quick, actually, even if probably for most of them, they never saw corals and they will never see a corals in their life. They want to be involved. And what we found out is when the most data we have, obviously the most the predictive power of the statistical analysis we are doing are going to increase. So the most images we get, the most often and across the reef, the better analysis are going to be to predict how the reef will look like in the future, what is going on in the places where we can't go. I kind of want to ask you a cheeky question, and you don't have to answer this one. Have you done a comparison between the AI and the citizen scientists? Which one does better? It's for a different purpose, but the AI is going to be really good to differentiate the all the different types of corals, the different types of algae, because the AI is trained for this. So usually the AI is not good from nothing. It's you have experts, you have reef scientists, you go through images and classify hundreds and hundreds of images. 
to be able to pick up all the differences. We cannot do this with the citizens because you need to be an expert. Even being an expert, we cannot go at the coral species because you need a microscope to be able to differentiate different types of coral species. It's really fine line and it's, you really need to be well trained. But what the citizens can do is they can help to build trainings for the AI. But what they can do also as the citizen is they can find new things on the reef, something the AI will always miss because they don't train to find new things. They can't do it. They can do really well what we train them on it. The citizen, they have the capabilities to find new things. If something happened because of bleaching or because that we miss the AI is not trained on, the citizens can pick up. And also the AI needs a lot of images to be really good. So in places where we don't have a lot of images yet, we can still use the citizens to do the job. And on the top of that, you have all the engagement and the awareness and the education that you can transmit to the citizens, like the AI is not made for it as well. No, and AI don't vote. Um, <laughs> Fortunately, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably for the best. Um, that was a really good answer. That was a bit of a curly question. So, yeah, I think that was, they've each got their strengths. We are working on this because there is all these different solutions that you can bring and all of them provide the value to at the end to better protect the reef and create data for us to build our statistical models. So that's a part of research is how can we combine all these different ways together and not saying, oh, one is the best than the other one. So let's forget about the other one. I don't think we should go on this way. And especially when there is a massive community of people who wants to be involved and who wants to do something. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, like all the things that you're looking at, like you've got a huge spatial variation, you've got different events, you've got like the cyclones and the bleaching, and then you've also got runoff and then you've got like whatever tourists do, which, you know, could be a bit hit and miss, like all the different things. You can't just pick one tool that's going to be able to pick that all apart. Exactly. All the tools, yeah. Anything involving climate change, complex. Yeah, and this is urgent as well. Like it has to be quick because changes happen really fast and uh, there is an emergency. And corals are not known for adapting particularly well as quickly as they might need to, I guess. Yeah, the issue with the corals is that they grow really, really slow. So for some of them, they need 10, 50 years to bounce back from a disturbance. So until now, it was fine because like in the forest, you have a big fire and it's actually good. It's actually good for the maintain of the biodiversity. And one every 20, 30 years, a big fire or a big cyclone was actually helping for the biodiversity of coral reef. But the issue now is not just one cyclone. It's one cyclone plus one bleaching, plus the crown of thorn starfish as well. Some outbreak, some of these giant starfish who come by waves and just eat everything on the reef. And this plus the runoff plus the so there is really a, an accumulation of things that it's currently happening. And the scary thing is 
we don't know if at some point everything is not going to collapse because it's not going to be able to sustain all of this. Sorry if I kill your evening. <laughs> no, no, no. I was going to ask it possibly even more an evening killer question, which is we often hear about, you know, if we don't do something, the reef will die. Have you ever in your dark moments thought about like what that might look like? Like what does it look like if the reef doesn't bounce back? Is it just like, does it just become rubble or like, is it just like a house of crowd of thoughts, starfish and like one lonely fish or like, do you have any idea? Phil, is a depressing question. There is some theory that say that our expectation about the reef are going to shift because the reef is less and less biodiverse. You will have maybe less fish, but maybe that would be the case, but people will still enjoy the reef, whatever the state it is. Because it's not just the reef, it's the experience of going underwater, of traveling on the boat, of meeting people. And sometimes there is a lot of studies showing that the aesthetic value of the reef, so which is something probably really important for tourism, it's clearly decreasing because the reef is getting less and less diverse, less and less color, but people will adapt their expectation in some way. But I know that for me, for example, I did, the funny thing is I did 10 years of university. I studied mostly in France and what I was doing was calling the science of life. That's the title of my course that I was doing. I finished my wonderful course. (laughs) I I finished my PhD, and my first job that I really got was in 2016 to go and record the impact of the bleaching around the world. And so we were driving this underwater scooter, and it was dead. It was dead, dead reef. It was brown, no fish, nothing around. And it was really, really depressing. So we were in the Maldives and we were able to do the before and after the bleaching because we were going to revisit exactly the same places. And it was death. It was just death. Nothing around. Where was this reef was supposed to be pristine and fully alive and, um, but no, nothing. So, but every day we were waking up and going diving and hoped that we will find a good reef which we did more or less, but was, yeah, that's the reality. So 10 years of studying the science of life and your first job is everything is dead. <laughs> <laughs> yes, is a part of life. Like death is a part of life. Da, 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 the cycle of things. But yeah, that's really, that's not what you signed up for. Yeah. And maybe just to finish about the point is my expectation of a beautiful reef, it's probably different from the expectation of a reef scientist now, which used to dive in the 80s or in the 70s on the reef, because it, it already changed so much that the shift is already happening, probably. But we don't know until when. Probably people at some point, they will just find out that it's not interesting anymore to go and, and visit it. Or we don't know. Interesting. So like at one extreme, there's just everything is dead and we're all sad. <laughs> And then sort of the other extreme is kind of like, it's sort of like boiling a frog where we just sort of like, as a society adapt and adapt until we're like, oh yeah, it's normal. And it's a brown fish. 
Yeah. For example, we did a study when we use virtual reality to quantify the aesthetic value of the reef. And what we found is we found that people liked on the reef, they liked a 3D complex morphology. So, you know, like this is not flat. There is some hills, there is some 3D structures and they like corals on the reef. So what was really interesting is like the most colorful organism of the reef are not necessarily the indicator of the reef health. For example, like the sponges, the soft corals are really, really colorful, like really yellow, purples, and but they are most often the signs of pollutions and bad water quality. So people find this really pretty, but this doesn't mean that the reef is healthy or in good condition. Kind of like you get some of the best sunsets where there's like a high amount of air pollution. Exactly. Um, yeah. Like it's so pretty. <laughs> okay, beauty. It just doesn't. Or sometimes when the coral bleach, they have all this fluorescence before they die. I saw it. It's absolutely beautiful. But you know that they're just having a heat stroke and they are currently die. Man, we are such weird creatures, human beings. It's so beautiful. It's almost dead. Can't think of anything else that we quite like that. We might move on to possibly a less uh, sad question. What does an average day at work look like for you? Doing research is you have to do a lot of things on the top of your research. And mostly what I'm working is I'm working with a lot of collaborators. So there are some days where we will spend hours and hours of brainstorming for new projects or something we stock on our project. So I will work sometimes with the coral reef ecologists, so going mostly to Townsville. For me, I'm working a lot with the Australian Institute of Marine Science, talking about the reef, talking about the ecology. Sometimes I will discuss with the statisticians. So this is mostly here based in Brisbane. So having a pen, looking at on the whiteboard, writing some equations. Some of the day we talk about the software developers, which is a completely another world. And the research is mostly writing scientific papers, doing some computations, a lot of computations. So it's actually a lot of time behind the computers. And I wish to do much going on the reef much more often. But this is not really my actual job to do that. So it's mostly computing based. And you're developing new like prediction models and that sort of stuff? Yeah. So we try to develop more complex models to consider all the complexity that you can find of the reef, that everything change in space, everything change in time. We want to infer on places where we don't have data, you work on the Great Barrier Reef, which is huge, huge places. And so the idea of the models we develop is mostly to understand the impact of climate change, but also quantify the uncertainty about how sure we are that this is happening like this, or this is happening in another way. So it's mostly quantifying the uncertainty into the model and trying to understand what we can do if with this uncertainty, if we can make decision considering the uncertainty or if we need more data or the methodology is wrong. Yeah, 
assuming that everything you do is absolutely perfect and reflective of the real world. Yeah, no, no. In the world of research, you always, it will never be perfect because if it's perfect, we won't, we won't have research anymore. If we just know everything, we yeah. just go to Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how hard this will be to answer, but we often hear about models, right? Like medical or statistical models. What does a model actually look like? Like, is it a file with a whole lot of lines of code or like, is it lots of different files, like just the actual files or whatever, or like lines of code? Like, what does a model look like? So in theory, the model is mathematical equations with a lot of Greek symbols. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's, the, it's the, the maths where you're not just using numbers. <laughs> yeah, 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 so a lot of alpha, theta. And in practice, it's, yeah, it's you have your, your codes and it's line of code when it's a lot of loops and you have a lot of action within these loops and you use, because it's, it's pretty statistical model, it's pretty complex, it's you use external algorithm to estimate the value of parameters. And so this algorithm, it's not us who develop this. It's really the statisticians that develop this, but we just use it as a tool to estimate these parameters. And the estimation of these parameters, it's based on 100,000 runs of these algorithms. So you ending up by having the output of this, these giant files, which is 100,000 value that they are within different columns. And then most of time, what you have to do is you have to get this output and putting it in the right format to be able to interpret this value, making sure that everything is right and doing some visualization. So actually, when you do some modeling, 70% of your time is cleaning the data and preparing the data for the model. Maybe 10, 20% is the actual modeling by itself. And then the rest is preparing the data for the output and visualization and interpretations. Right. Thank you for explaining that because it's something that I've been like, I feel like I should know the answer to this. <laughs> just no, that's a really nice question. It's, it's so complex. Like it's not just you and a couple of colleagues sitting there and being like, we're really smart. We're writing like equations on a whiteboard. It's like with, then you take that equation and then you to interpret it into things using other people's tools. Yeah. We use the open software called R mostly. Have you heard about R? Yeah. So R it's, the beauty of R is you have really smart people who develop packages. And what my job is to understand statistics enough to find these packages and make sure that they do what, what we want they do. Or you helping or getting some help from statisticians to develop new ones if they don't exist yet. But mostly it's to apply all these modern statistical ecology methods to real question for coral reef monitoring and conservations and what we can do when we combine all these different domains together. It is. It's like collaborative at its core, isn't it? Yeah. It's mostly, it's a lot of collaboration. And this is what excites me the most in my field. And um, it, this is probably how research and probably reef research is evolving. It's 
this is so com- the, the issue is so complex, is so urgent that we need to find some fast solutions. And solution exists, but we need to collaborate to be able to find them, to implement them and give them to the right people. 100% a team effort. On a probably an easier question, what was your path to get to where you are now? Like what was the plan, say, in high school to now? The plan was to do marine biology. I grew up on the Mediterranean coast in the south of France, mostly on the boat. And all my life, I just wanted to study marine biology. And so I started uni doing this. And then I decided to go on a tropical island. Uh, I needed a bit more warm. And um, I went to the Reunion Island, which is uh, an island close to Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. And this is where I start to discover coral reef. And at the time, I already was major in modeling, so in mathematical and statistical modeling, because it was a natural thing for me. I always liked maths and stats, mostly maths because nobody likes stats at uni, but it was mostly mathematics. And then from there, I knew that I wanted to work on coral reef and I kept going to develop these two skills. So the reef ecology, coral reef ecology, mostly corals based on corals and all this modeling. And the rest of uni was working on these two skills and uh, until I found my PhD here in Australia, in Brisbane at QUT, where I was developing statistical model for coral reef monitoring data. And since then I'm working on this and trying to get better in the two domains every day. Yep. You never get to stop learning. No, that's the beauty of it, yeah. So you grew up on boats. Yeah. That's cool. So there is, in south of France, you have actual seasons, not here in Brisbane. <laughs> so we were, we were in a boat from May to September, always, every day, since I was two years old. That's cool. It must, yeah. I mean, it's awesome that you're doing work that's supporting the reef, but it must be a little bit hard not being a bit closer to it. Yeah, it is. Actually, Brisbane is the first place in my life when I'm living far away from the sea or not on the sea, actually. That's it. We moved and we are more in the forest. So that's in the rivers. There is still water around, at least. (laughs) Yeah, there's been a bit too much water around. The water is a bit murky lately. Have you got any advice that you would give to a young person considering a career like what you're doing? It used to say that working on climate change and how the reef is dying and can be scary and depressing. Is it scary and depressing? But there is another side of the story to look at is also is an exciting time to be a scientist right now because we face challenge that we never had to face before. And there is a need for new brain, new way of thinking. If I have an advice for someone who wants to go in this domain, it's do it. It's so enriching and there is a need for it. But do it in the way that we need to have skills that it's really needed now. In the, I'm not sure if, I, if I'm really clear, but 
Everyone wants to be a marine biologist and go and dive on the reef. Everyone wants to do it, but I want to do it. I would like that it's my job, but there is so many people who wants to do it that there is a massive competition and not enough job for it. But if, as a young student, if you can develop your own profile of having different types of expertise that can help to have a unique profile, and that will make you singular and different from the other ones. And also that will help to think differently from the other ones. And I think this is this type of profile now that we need in the field. That's really good advice, yeah. Like it's one thing to want the, the fun, shiny thing, but it's like it's also important to think about the different ways that you as a person can contribute, and that might be by bringing together two different skills. So it could be scuba diving, but it could also be being really, really good at stats. Yeah, combining that those two data things. science. Yeah, you can. It's, it's possible. <laughs> well, data science, yes, because there's no shortage of uh, of data, really. <laughs> no, except probably in those spots where you want it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That'd be typical. Are there any myths or misconceptions? Like at a party, do people like go, oh, you work on marine biology, you know about, or the coral reef is doing this or something? I don't know. I think I will more discuss on the statistical side for this question. There is a big misconception about being a statistician. It's most of people think that being a statistician is just made for a stereotype of people um, that cannot be fun or cannot be sociable and the even worse cannot be a woman. You know, it's a really a man word and this is really wrong because you can be a statistician and work in every single field you want. I work with people, I work in the in the research group I'm working on coral reef, but I work with people who work on sport data. So helping the Olympians to win more medals for the, the next Olympics. I work with people who work on disease, the air pollution, the noise on the airports. And so in every single domain, you need statisticians to work with. So statistics is not just about the theory. It exists and they have, we need the theory as well. But there is a huge window for applications. And when people think about statistics, they only think about the Greek symbols and uh, the lectures that we all had at university or high school. And um, But no, actually, you can work on, on really fun projects and with challenges being a statistician. That is not a myth I would have expected. It's it's a bit disappointing. It sounds like people think statisticians should be kept in a basement somewhere and shouldn't be allowed out to see the light. Um, yeah, it's is, a myth, yeah. Gosh, I'm glad you're here helping bust that myth because that's ridiculous. Obviously, all the listeners know that statisticians are all cool and also really good communicators because Dr. Julie has just explained what a model is and I think we've all got a clearer idea now. So <laughs> not just cool people, but also good communicators. Is there anything else we haven't touched upon that you would like to share? I would like to share the the project on citizen science that I mentioned yes. before. So the name of the project is the Virtual Reef Diver. Everyone can jump online and go and classify some images 
for us. It's really easy. There is no need of training. And as I tried to explain before, this data really used for us and to improve our statistical model to predict the health across the entire reef. So this is a cool and fun project that will help the stats and the statistician behind them. Who we all have a greater appreciation for now. So that was the virtual reef diver, which sounds like a great, you know, if you can't get to the Great Barrier Reef this year, you know, it sounds like a pretty good alternative. And we can include a link in the show notes. Thank you. Do love some good citizen science. And obviously, next time you go to the reef, take a photo and upload it. Yeah, you can do that also on the virtual reef diver. And so to wrap up, have you got a shout out for us, a virtual high five for someone or someone who you think is doing an awesome job and deserves a lot of celebration? I think I will just talk about the coral reef scientists, you know, the poor coral reef scientists. We, we witness a lot of death, a lot of sad things, but we're still here every day, burning our brain every single day to try to find solution and help the reef. And this is pretty brave and we all love the reef and I'm thinking about them, us. We need some encouragement. Yeah. Okay, so shout outs, high fives. If you meet a coral reef scientist and you have their consent, you should definitely give them a hug because I feel like they probably need it because it's obviously there's good bits, but there's some really sad bits too. Okay, high fives to all the coral reef scientists out there. You're doing an amazing job. Please keep it up and please do take breaks, have boundaries, look after your mental health because we need you to be able to do it again tomorrow. Exactly. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Julie. This has been an absolute delight. We've managed to laugh through all the pain, which is important. And please keep doing an amazing job. Myself and all the listeners really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee. Head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link. Buy me a coffee and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend. Bye.